For our scripture reading this morning, we turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, and watch unto prayer. And above all things have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice. Inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God, commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. We consider this morning the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 19, which encompasses the teaching of 1 Peter 4 and many other passages. Lord's Day 19. Why is it added, and sitteth at the right hand of God? Because Christ is ascended into heaven for this end, 
that he might appear as head of his church, by whom the Father governs all things. What profit is this glory of Christ our head unto us? First, that by his Holy Spirit he pours out heavenly graces upon us as members. And then, that by his power he defends and preserves us against all enemies. What comfort is it to thee that Christ shall come again to judge the quick and the dead? That in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head, I look for the very same person who before offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God and has removed all curse from me to come as judge from heaven, who shall cast all his and mine enemies into everlasting condemnation, but shall translate me with all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joys and glory. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we've gone through the Apostles' Creed and explained our confession of the Son of God, namely Jesus Christ, everything that we have confessed about Him is something that has occurred in the past. We look back into the past, and faith in the Apostles' Creed exclaims what it truly and certainly believes about the work of the Son of God in the past. And now, with these two final expressions of the Apostles' Creed, we look at the present and the future. The present and the future. We confess that the Son of God, having ascended into heaven and being seated at God's right hand, is now at the present the ruler and king over all the world. And we need to understand what that means. And in the second place, we exclaim by faith what we expect to happen, what will certainly be with regard to the Son of God and the future. One importance of this is that it gives us occasion to compare our own present earthly life in light of that confession. To ask ourselves very sharply and honestly, does my life as a believer, or the life that I claim to have as a believer, does that accord with, does that reflect this reality? That's a question worth asking because in the first place there are many Christians, ourselves included, who live only in the past. Who believe that the sum and substance of the Christian life is simply about what we believe about the work of Christ in the past. What has He done in the past? What do I believe about His birth, His life, His ministry, His miracles? and especially His death and resurrection, perhaps ascension also, if we remember that and its importance. But that is not the sum and substance of the Christian faith. The Christian faith is also about the present. What do I believe about the Son of God here and now, about what He is and what He is doing, about His present rule and work, and importantly about the future. 
But also now, to look at myself and my life, because it's also true that in the Christian church, there are many members of the church whose lives, in fact, do not at all accord with this confession. It may be something that they mumble or say on a Sunday evening, along with the other members, but their life, and if one could peer into their heart, if they themselves would honestly peer into their heart, one must conclude they really don't believe that. They can't. The church is full of members whose lives clearly place no trust or if there is a modicum of trust, that's all it is. And the ascended rule of Jesus Christ now over their own life. They place their trust for joy and happiness in drugs and alcohol and how much money they can make in the size of their house and the number of toys they can accumulate. Take them away, and they become depressed, anxious. There are many, many members of the church who have never suffered what the majority of the church has suffered in its existence. They aren't prevented from worshiping God by the threat of persecution and harm. And still you won't find them in church, hardly at all. And have all kinds of excuses about why they can't come to church. Christians who haven't lost property, haven't been beaten or whipped, and you never hear them hardly mumble a thing about what they confess in front of others to Jesus Christ because they're afraid of what people might think of them. There are individuals whose primary visitation is to the doctor for medications or counselors for counsel because they're so depressed and so anxious over what's going on in their life. They worry about this. They worry about that. They're concerned about this. They're concerned about that. They're filled with sorrow. They're filled with all sorts of moroseness. And if you ask them why, they really can't give you an answer. There's many in the church who have never experienced war. The mass loss of loved ones and property, the invasion of their country and their home, who have never experienced pestilence and famine, destructive, catastrophic events in nature, and yet are filled with depression and sorrow and anxiety over the smallest of things in this earthly life, where they take things that in no wise even come near to such troubles and afflictions that others have had happened to them and confess with the boldness of faith, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Those words are far from their lips. What about your life? Does your life, does your heart, does your behavior, do your thoughts, and does your confession reflect the truth that you believe that Jesus Christ sits now at God's right hand and is coming again 
to judge the quick and the dead. Let's consider this morning together this truth of the Heidelberg Catechism under the theme, the return of the enthroned Christ. The return of the enthroned Christ. We consider, first of all, the reality, the truth of this, and the truth that is confessed here in the Heidelberg Catechism and in the Apostles' Creed, the truth that every believer confesses is that Christ is now seated at God's right hand. Not was, so that it has no present implications, but that He is now seated at God's right hand and is coming again. Now we need to connect those so that when we look at this reality, we have to see that there is a connection between everything that we have confessed about Jesus and what we confess about Him now. They are related. The idea is not that sometime in the future at an appointed day and completely unrelated to anything else is that Christ is going to return. So that everything I see going around me now and everything in my present life and everything in the present history of the world has really nothing at all to do with the fact that Christ is coming again to judge the quick and the dead. That's one mistake we make and why our lives often do not reflect the truth of this confession. But the fact is they're all related. And the relation is that Christ is coming now. That even His coming isn't, strictly speaking, something only in the future. But the idea is that Christ is seated at God's right hand and coming as we speak. He is on the way. And everything that He's doing now as King, seated at God's right hand, is being directed to that end, to that purpose. The idea is very similar to earthly life. If you would tell your children that grandma and grandpa who live way far off on the other side of the world are coming. The children will look at that not simply as the coming of grandpa and grandma when they finally open the door and you see them or you pick them up at the airport. But they will recognize that they are coming from the moment they've been told that. That grandma and grandpa are making preparations in their home to pack things, to arrange material things, money, places to stay, places to go, the trip itself, and all of that is part of their coming. So it is with Christ's return. In fact, the Scriptures emphasize this especially in relation to the ascension, even the resurrection and death. That Christ is ascended so that in His human nature, Jesus Christ might receive all authority and power which He needs in order to direct His coming. That's necessary. That's the Scriptures. One chapter earlier in First Peter than the one we read, First Peter 3.22, we read that Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to Him. Or Hebrews 10. But this man sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth till his enemies be made his footstool. Or Ephesians 1, verses 20 and 21. 
says that God set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Now the Heidelberg Catechism emphasizes that, especially as it pertains to us, for our comfort, for our benefit. And that we need to point out. Is this of real comfort and benefit for you? Or is it only abstract? Is it only theoretical? So that one asks himself, what does that have to do for me now? How does that pertain to the fact that I just lost my job? How does that pertain to the fact that I would like to earn a little bit more money? How does that pertain to the fact that I'm suffering? Or that I have all kinds of anxiety and doubts about this or that? Well, the Catechism addresses that. And in fact, it lays all the emphasis upon that. Question and answer 46. He is taken up from earth into heaven and continues there abstractly. He continues there and it has no real bearing on your life whatsoever. So that Christ being enthroned in heaven has nothing to do with the so-called accident that happened early this week that's brought us all so much grief. No. He continues there for our interest. Catechism, as it were, sweeps away everything else that Christ is doing, as it were, and says, everything's for you. Your problem is you forget that. Your problem is you don't remember that. Your problem is you spend too much time listening to the devil and the world in these matters. Question answer 50. He has ascended into heaven to this end that he might appear as head of his church by whom Father governs all things. Or question and answer 51. The profit of all this is that by His Holy Spirit, He pours out heavenly graces upon us, His members, and by His power defends and preserves us from all enemies. What's the importance that He ascended into heaven is now seated at God's right heaven, that right now He is pouring out heavenly graces. That's not just a past thing. He poured out he gave at one time, and now I'm on my own, but He pours out heavenly graces so that what happens to me this week will result in and have something to do with God pouring out through Christ heavenly graces. That's the comfort that concludes Romans 8. Remember Romans 8 and how it goes? The question is, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Let alone some of the things that we mention that bring us to anxiety and depression? No. I am persuaded, this is the Christian, this is the believer, I am persuaded that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Why? Go look. Part of it, of course, is related to the fact that He atoned for our sins. He redeemed us. But also, according to the book of Romans, He is seated right now at the right hand of God. But often, often overlooked in all this is that Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven and is seated at God's right hand because He is right now directing and accomplishing and working out 
his own return. If you would ask yourself, what is Christ doing right now? Part of the answer, of course, is he's working for us in our interest. He's doing many, many things for us all the time. Things you're not aware of because, well, perhaps you're not looking at them by faith. You're only looking with your human eyeballs and ears. So we don't see the graces raining down from heaven like the gentle rain. But the other is He's coming. He's on the way. That's the whole point of the book of Revelation if you read it. The whole book of Revelation is about the coming, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one thing that book makes clear is all the things that must occur and are occurring continually since His ascension to accomplish the one great act of Jesus Christ that remains in earthly time and history. His return. This is brought out time and time again in Scripture. This is the point of Christ in the passage of Scripture where He gives the signs, especially in Luke 21. There's all kinds of claims about who Christ is and where He is. The idea being Christ is some earthly Savior and He's over here and He's over there. And people run here and they run over there and they join this organization and that church to listen to these supposed Christs proclaimed by these false prophets. And He's not there. He's ascended into heaven, seated at God's right hand. And He's coming. And He is there. And He's even in there and all the things that people are running here and there looking for Christ to save them from. Only looking for a different Christ and a wrong salvation. Jesus rules right now over all things so powerfully, so wonderfully, so unmistakably that the Scriptures make clear there are signs. You can see His work. The signs of His coming. The Scriptures teach that in the book of Revelation. Jesus Himself teaches that in the book of Matthew chapter 22, and especially in Luke 21, the parallel passage. There all these signs are listed, and you can even categorize them. There are signs in the earth, like earthquakes and famines. There are signs in the heavens, like what happens to the sun and the moon and the stars. There are moral signs that one can see in the moral life of people, great wickedness, rebellion against God. There are signs in the nations, wars, political upheaval, signs in the church, apostasy, the proliferation of false Christs, persecution of the church. All kinds of signs. But they're not abstractions. They're not just simply things that say to us, well, Christ is coming sometime in the future, but Christ is coming in the signs. They are part of His coming. They belong to it. Like the signs of giving birth to a child. It's part of the birth itself. Or the signs of a great, great thunder shower. What we hear and what we experience is part of the event itself. 
There's a relationship to these signs. If you look at them carefully, you're going to notice they're related as to cause and effect. Certain signs cause other signs. They are also related by the fact that they are God's judgment and response. God does things in response to what men do, whether it be in the world or even in the church. They're also related in that all of them are unmistakable and certain. There's not an individual that should be able to miss them. You see that even in our own day. There's signs in the creation. Men react to that. And they give all sorts of explanations for that. This is climate change. Man caused climate change. It's this. It's that. This is what's going on. They never link it to God, of course. But don't forget, the sign is unmistakable and certain. These signs also increase in intensity. The Bible teaches that. They will increase in frequency and intensity. Greater and greater. And why? Well, partly so that they can be even more unmistakable. So that there's a sense of urgency and understanding. Until the church even gets to the point where it can say, Christ is coming at any moment. Such as the intensity and frequency of the signs. He has to come. There are signs also that cause sorrow and pain for the church. Understand that. Notice the catechism. Why do we need comfort? Why does it ask the question about comfort? Why does it look at all this from our perspective? And the answer is because we need it. Realize that there's many in the church, and this is part of the signs, that don't want this comfort. They seek a different comfort. They see what's happening and what's going on. They want a different deliverance. The deliverance for man-caused climate change is, well, we need carbon credits and we need political involvement. We need the world to unite in these things. That's how we're going to solve and fix this. We need a better political leader. We need a common currency. We need this, we need that. Well, the church experiences too. They come upon the church. They affect the church. The Bible makes that so clear. They're just signs that happen out there somewhere outside the walls. They, they hit us. They affect us. So that the catechism says we need comfort. And the comfort is because I have sorrows and even persecutions. So how do we respond to that? I have sorrows. doesn't matter what they're caused by. They're related to the coming of Christ. A death. Something that happens economically, politically. Something that's going around in the environment. Things that are happening in the church. All kinds of things happening all around us. Do we link them to the coming of Christ, number one? And number two, in those sorrows, do I say, Christ is coming. And I'm looking forward to His coming. No, with sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head, I look. I look for the very same person who redeemed and saved me from my sins to come again. I can assure you of this, beloved. You can run hither, thither, and yon for help with your depression and your anxiety and your tears and your sorrows. And they shouldn't be minimized. Do not mistake the preacher this morning. He is not minimizing those things. They are real. I have no doubt about it. The Scriptures say so. The Bible says so. But our problem is, number one, we don't link them to the right things. And we look for solutions that are temporary at best. 
Do we link them to the coming of Christ, number one? Number two, do I find my comfort in that? Because you can have all the money in the world, doctor can give you all the pills in the world, you can have as much fun as you want. Without that, you're going to be miserable. And there's nothing I or anyone else can do about it. Primary sign of Christ's coming, of course, is the preaching of the gospel. Revelation makes that clear in the running of the white horse. And it's the primary sign because it's the one that really causes all the rest. It's the one that shows the one great thing that must occur before Christ returns, which is the establishment of the kingdom of Christ in the church over the whole world. Yes, Christ's kingdom is a worldwide kingdom. How do I look that for that to be fulfilled? By political dominion of the church over the nations? Guess again, not going to happen. But there will be a worldwide establishment of the church. Churches will be found everywhere and in any place. The gospel will go forth. That must occur. But it's that which also causes all the rest of the signs in a very real way. They're all linked to that in one way or another. The Bible says one of the signs is there's going to be worldwide persecution. How can that happen? Well, the church is established worldwide. And there's a reaction to that church being established worldwide. There's a reaction to the preaching of the gospel and the call to all men, repent and believe. All men hear that. All men have presented before them Jesus Christ who is Lord and Savior. And there's some who are converted and the church is founded. And there's others who reject it. And not only reject it, but go on to persecute the church. Trouble the church. Cast their rebellion directly against Christ Himself. And there's a reaction. All kinds of reactions to that. Part of it is the church apostatizes. There's plenty of people that say, I don't like this persecution. I don't like this trouble. I don't like this suffering for Christ's sake. I'm out of here. I'm going to go somewhere else. There's apostasy, in other words. There's apostasy in the form of those who say, you know what, the idea of spiritual salvation and salvation from sin and death really isn't for me if it comes with all this. I would like salvation from my suffering and my pain. And I like the idea of Christ and heaven and all these things, but I want it to occur this way and that way. I don't like the idea of suffering and trouble, pains and sorrows. and There's apostasy. Now the reaction is, that God judges the world for that persecution, for its hatred and condemnation as the gospel goes forth. And so there are catastrophes. God sends wars and famines and pestilences. And in reaction to those things, men shake their fist at God more and more. The rebellion becomes more overt and worldwide. And God reacts more and more. And the greatest wickedness of man is, of course, in the, tr- the attempt to eliminate the church, to remove the church. Do you see that? Do you see that socially and politically, economically, over the whole world, this great attempt of man to wipe out the testimony of Jesus Christ in the earth? Do you see that? Do you see Christ is coming? Do you see how close he is? There's two signs that immediately occur before the coming of Christ and also are helpful to understand how near is the return of Christ. Signs that weren't so apparent even that long ago. And one is worldwide apostasy of the church. Not only will there be the worldwide development of the church, but according to the book of Thessalonians, 
Second Thessalonians chapter 2, there must be a great falling away. That is, this great worldwide church that is established by the preaching of the gospel will fall away. And it will fall away ethically from the holiness and sanctity that the church lived before God according to His will to fall away from that into rebellion and lawlessness. That which God calls good will be called evil, and that which God calls evil they will call good. That's the church. And fall away doctrinally. The great truths that the church once stood for and preached and rejoiced in, the church says, we're not interested in those. And when you see that, you know how near Christ is. When you see the great falling away, not just here and there, but everywhere, over entire continents and nations, where there were once strong, solid, biblical churches. You have none of that. You have churches, but they don't believe what they used to believe. The second thing is the revelation of the Antichrist. That that spirit of the Antichrist, which already now is in the world, takes a bodily form, is incarnated as it were. The spirit of the devil, the spirit of that wicked one, will be manifest in a single man whom the Bible describes as first of all a king, a political ruler, a political king and ruler over the whole world that must occur, ruling over all and achieving his power by deception, by brute force, by working signs and wonders that ooh and they ah. And so he's also described as a false prophet that is a religious component a man who sets himself not only as king but the king one who is God who is Lord who is the one whom men will worship and no one else no place for Allah and Buddha also no place for Jehovah God and thus great worldwide persecution from this man and we know that happens just before Christ returns because it's Christ who consumes him who consumes him personally. And in fact, his appearance even prompts the coming of Christ on the clouds of heaven because so great is the sorrow and persecution that he brings that if time were not shortened for the elect's sake, the church would perish. There's a reason why Jesus himself in Luke chapter 8 asks that chilling question to you and to me. When the Son of Man returns on the clouds of heaven, will he find faith on the earth? The answer to that question, of course, is yes, he will. Yes, he will. Faith will never, ever perish from off the earth before Christ returns, and it's why he returns. But the point of that question is there won't be much. And we can see that already in our own day, I fear we can even see it in our own churches. We must ask ourselves, in response to this truth and reality, do I truly live by faith? Not just faith about what happened in the past. Oh yes, it's real easy to say I believe in Jesus Christ who died for my sins on the cross, who suffered and died, or even that He arose again, or even that He ascended into heaven. But what about faith that says He rules right now? over everything in my life, over everything in the church, over everything in the world, He rules. My Savior, that one, 
Same one. And I believe He's coming again. And that is my comfort in life and death. And how often is that not the case? And when it's not the case, beloved, let's not fool ourselves. That's not faith. Faith doesn't run hither, thither, and yon looking for all kinds of solutions for life's problems other than Jesus Christ. Faith does not run hither, thither, and yon looking for all kinds of saviors or saying to itself, if I just had a bigger house, just had more toys, if I just had the newer model pickup truck, if I just store some more guns and learn how to shoot, my life will be a whole lot better. I'll be protected from these things. Jesus is coming again. Second point of our sermon is the purpose of that. Jesus ascended so that He could come again and come again now to judge the quick and the dead. Now that is striking for us. First of all, realize the truth of this. It is amazing how often when Scriptures point to the coming of Jesus Christ, they don't point to the many things that we point to. Even if we do believe in the present hope by faith of Jesus' return, we look to His return for the bodily resurrection. That will be the day in which I shall be raised from the dead and I shall live forever, body and soul, with my Lord and Savior. What a wonderful thing. And it is. Or I look to Jesus' return to destroy this present creation in a great fire and then to make a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells, where heaven and earth are united in a way that we do not understand now. And we live in that forever and ever. I look for that. But you'd be surprised how often the Scriptures do not connect the return of Christ to that, but rather to the judgment. First Peter 4 that we read. Go back and read it again. Notice the connection. Or 2 Timothy 4. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. Acts chapter 10. He commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that He which was ordained of God to be judge of the quick and the dead. Notice that. doesn't speak about Jesus being ordained of God to die for our sins, which is true but to come again and judge the quick and the dead. Why is that? Why is that? I ask the question because it explains why we don't live in the present reality of Christ's rule or in the present hope of His coming again. And the answer is because it doesn't really have to do with you at all. Oh, it does. Don't get me wrong. It'll be an amazing thing for the child of God that He does look forward to, should look forward to, it is related to the resurrection of the dead. We are, in fact, judged in our bodies that are raised from the dead. It has to do with the future life. For what God judges and declares then is true in all eternity. But the fact is that we are judged before the final judgment. We are judged now. We know whether or not our sins are forgiven. Faith does. Faith knows that. Faith doesn't have any doubt about that. Faith hears the Word of God, your sins are forgiven, and says, I believe that's for me. You are judged the instant you die. The instant you die, you stand before the Lord in your soul, and you will either live with the Lord or be cast into hell. That's a judgment. Even the way Christ returns will indicate 
what's going to happen in the final judgment. The Bible is very clear about the order of Christ's return, and it makes clear that we don't sit there in the judgment like every other person standing there saying, I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder what's going to happen. Well, we'll know, because you'll be standing there in your resurrected body, a body fit for life, eternal life. It will become evident. If you look at the coming of Christ, it's really quite amazing. He returns with us. The Bible makes clear that when Christ returns instantly, suddenly, in a world that's under a great cataclysm, the stars are falling from the sky, the sun in the heavens is being darkened, there in the heavens stands the glorified Christ so that all can see Him. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine in a world that is honing in on the church, perhaps has its sword raised, to wipe out the last of the church. Over against all the judgments of God that they ignore and all their blasphemies, all of a sudden there is Christ appearing in the sky in His glorious form. And not only that, but with Him is a tremendous army of all His holy angels. And not only that, but before all the world, all the dead in Christ begin to rise out of their grave. They are called forth with the trumpet and the sound and the voice of God. And they are raised up. And they join the Lord. They meet the Lord in the air. And then those who are alive at His coming, they too are transformed and they return with the Lord in glorified, raised bodies, sharing in the glory of the Lord and His return. And only then is there the final destruction of heaven and earth, and then the judgment. Now that ought to all by itself be enough for us to look forward to the judgment, but it doesn't still really answer the question, why does the Scriptures emphasize it? And the answer is because it has to do with God. Theologians had a word for it. At one time it was familiar with us. It's called the theodicy. The theodicy. The theodicy refers to the final public vindication and justification of God Himself. You say, well, why does God need that? What's so important about that? And the answer is, for the history of mankind from His beginning, man has been slandering God, backbiting God, rebelling against God, sinning against God, declaring God doesn't exist, but especially this, God isn't fair, because man does know God. God has made Himself too clear. General revelation makes clear to all men God exists. The rejection of God is simply not ignorance. It's rebellion. And especially with His dealings with men, man says, God's not fair. God's not fair in saving men by grace. I hate that God. And God is not fair in judging us the way He does. Why does God have to have all these things? Why does everybody have to die? That's not fair. That's not right. It wasn't my fault. This person over here is worse. I couldn't help myself. All kinds of excuses. And in the judgment, God will make clear two things. He will make clear that the salvation of some, His elect church, that salvation is by grace alone. He will make clear, absolutely clear, in the judgment, you didn't save yourself. You couldn't save yourself. He will make clear by nature what you are, just like everyone else, and what you deserve, and that you stand there in that glorified body, raised and fitted for an everlasting life for one reason only, and it's what God has done. 
God will also make clear the grace working in you. And that part of the judgment will be those works that a child of God has done by that grace of God. And perhaps will even be used to shut the mouths of the natural man who says, I couldn't help it. You asked me to do what I can't do. And God will point to His church of saints and say, not so. But it will be clear that too is God's grace and grace alone. God will also make clear His absolute justice. Oh yes, all was by His sovereign appointment and His sovereign rule, even that rule by Jesus Christ Himself. But God will make clear that every war, every calamity, every death, every one of His dealings with men, even those dealings where men have said time and time again, this isn't fair, I've been unjustly accused. This isn't right. I don't deserve this. Was exactly what man deserved. And that's why in the end of the judgment, part of the glory of God, the theodicy, is that every single human being, ungodly and godly, reprobate and elect, wicked and saint, will bow the knee and say, Christ, this judge, is Lord. Now what's the response to that? Well, in the first place, the child of God should eagerly look forward to it. And as I hope you see, to the exclusion of everything else. You see, if this is truly what we look forward to and what we believe, then half the things, most of the things, perhaps all the things that we look to now become unnecessary. We look forward to this. We don't look forward to a day that we won't be judged. We don't look forward to a day where the world ends any other way. In fact, we even look forward, although with tears and sorrow, to the troubles that this brings. Child of God's response to this is not, well, I can expect a life of ease and pleasure. And if I don't get it in my church, I'm going to go to a different church. The response is that, well, I'm going to look for a church that's perfect, where everything's done right, or at least the way I think they ought to be. I'm going to look for a job where I don't have any troubles and afflictions. I'm going to look to have an existence and life in this earth that's, that's pretty pleasurable and at ease. No, not at all. That's what you're looking for. That's not faith. And it's not faith in Jesus either. Don't fool yourself. Don't say to yourself, well, I look forward to a Jesus who paid for my sins. Well, that Jesus has to return. That Jesus is ruling now. You can't have one without the other. If you believe in a Jesus that died for your sins and suffered for you on the cross, then you must also believe in a Jesus that brings suffering and is sovereign over suffering in your life and is using it to pour out heavenly graces. Oh yes, and He's coming again. Remember that. I wish we could all remember that a little bit more. You see, it's easy to say Jesus suffered and died for my sins, but now you have to stand before Him. Remember that. You have to stand before Him. And He's not the same Jesus that was on the earth. This is the glorified and exalted Jesus in whose presence you stand, brilliant with the holiness and glory of God. And you say, well, I can do that. My response is, don't be so sure about that. 
because if you use the same excuses you use to everybody else before the Lord, you're not going to stand. Try those excuses before the Lord. Stand before the Lord. And when He brings your sins to light, which is going to happen, they're all being brought to light. When He looks at you, your response is going to be, well, I, I couldn't help it. My life's pretty tough, pretty hard. Not as bad as the next guy. I'll get it under control. None of those are going to work. Those are all the excuses the ungodly are going to bring. The wicked are going to bring. Those are the responses and excuses of unbelief. Belief says, yes, Lord. And I stand only because I believe you've covered them. But that's not how we behave now. We may be concerned about our response in the judgment. How we respond is that we are joyful and we are content and we have comfort and we have patience and we have trust in this life. And that's the Christian life. That's what the Catechism sets forth. That, O Lord, that, O people of God, is the whole truth of the matter and the comfort and the gospel of this truth about our Lord Jesus Christ enthroned and coming again. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, O Lord, we thank Thee for Thy Word, Thy Word of truth, Thy Word that exposes our sin and brings us the assurance of the forgiveness of sins in our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Word that also sets before us that we might believe in His present rule over things and His great and glorious return in the clouds of heaven to judge us and all men Show forth thy glory and thy greatness. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.